When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Lord Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure, and now I have a band with Budgie and Jack Knifley, and you're listening to the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Deep Cuts Media. The Cure is one of the most iconic and enigmatic bands of the past several decades. Formed in 1978, the group created a look and sound unlike just about any other artist or band. Some called it goth, but when asked how they would describe the type of music they made, they would simply say, cure music. And that great music ranged from the deeply dark and mysterious, haunting songs like Lullaby and A Forest, to upbeat, playful, and simply just fun, like Friday I'm in Love and In Between Days. In any event, they refused to be pigeonholed and were better for it selling over 30 million albums and being entirely unique amongst other artists and bands that have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But it all started when The Cure's frontman Robert Smith met neighbor Lal Tolhurst when they were both five years old. They later schooled together, and the rest, as they say, is history. Tolhurst was the group's drummer and later moved to keyboards and co-wrote the classic early songs of The Cure with Smith. And then... Just as the group's success was reaching its apex, it disintegrated during the days of the album Disintegration, and Tullhurst left in acrimony. In this month's episode, Tullhurst openly discusses it all. During Tullhurst's time, the group released most of its most iconic hits, and Tullhurst co-penned many of them, including one of the group's early breakout songs, Boys Don't Cry, from its first album of the same name in the U.S. Tullhurst and I also discuss his fascinating new book, Goth, A History, and his new album, Los Angeles, recorded with Budgie of Susie and the Banshees and producer, multi-instrumentalist, Garrett Jackknife Lee. It's a rare look into the many layers of both The Cure and Tullhurst himself. So take a listen as we dive deep into the story behind the song, Boys Don't Cry, with Lal Tullhurst, formerly of The Cure. And this month, we're on a mission to spread the word about the story behind the song. And you are our secret weapon. If you love my show as much as I like bringing it to you, please hop over to Apple Podcasts, hit the follow button, and leave us a review. Not only is it a quick and easy way to show your support, but it will also give you the chance to win some exclusive Consequence merch. Yes, that's right. So just head to the link in the show notes and submit your info together with a screenshot of your review. We'll be shouting our winners in December, so make sure to follow and review my show as soon as you can. And thanks for all your support and for helping the story behind the song grow and continue to feature iconic guests. How would you describe The Cure's music, particularly during the times you were there? Okay. I, I'm not gonna be funny, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something that Robert always used to say when we were asked that question in the very, very beginning of our career. Yeah. You know, like in the in the late seventies, early eighties, we'd always be some hapless European journalists who would go, Well, what do you call your music? And Robert would always yeah. say, We call it cure music. 
That's what we call it because, you know. I like that. Let, let me be honest. It's everything. There's everything in it. You know, it's everything we ever listened to. A few months ago, my son, well, no, actually it's a bit longer than that, about a year or so ago, my son sent me a copy of his first album uh, as a test pressing. And he said, Dad, would you listen to it so that I, you know, I tell me if there's anything wrong on it, you know, with because he's yeah. never mastered a record before. So I went, sure, thank you. And then I panicked because like most middle-aged dads i don't have a turntable i didn't have a turntable you know i mean everything i listened to was on the phone or or on cds so i went out and i bought a turntable and i had a listen and i said yeah sounds great and then i found this box of old teenage records in in the corner of my garage and i thought i'm going to listen to those while i work on something and i listened to them and i was absolutely amazed because everything everything that was the cure was in that box and, and just like the strangest connections. But when you listen to it all those years later, I could go, oh, that's that's where we got this from. And that's where we you know, found this. So I, I agree with a, a good friend of mine, James Murphy from LCD Sound System. He said, when you start making music, you copy the people that you love. You know, you decide, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to make a song like them. And the way that you get it wrong, because you never make a song like the people that you admire, you can't, you know, it's, it's impossible. You don't know how they did it. So when, when you make a, a version of that, the way you get it wrong becomes your sound. And that was really true with The Cure. We, we would listen to stuff and we go, okay, well, we don't want to do that and we don't want to do this, but this sounds okay. And we do our kind of version of it and... The way we got it wrong became the cure. So as you looked in the box and you had all those different sounds and you go, I see that. I can see that in our music. I can see that. Yeah. Can you even pinpoint any major influences than at the time when you started the band? Well, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, you have to remember the time that we grew up sort of mid to late seventies was when we started making music. There wasn't much going on except disco and prog rock so take your pick there's stuff from all of that in there i mean yeah. we listen to a lot of stuff like you know sort of early kraut rock like can and harmonia and cluster and we also listen to things like david bowie you know like if you think 1977 the two pivotal albums to me at that in that year one of them will surprise most people because they don't think that it came out at this time. But there was there was a Clash's first album, which everybody yeah. knows came out then. There's also David Bowie's Low came out in 1977. And that was very different for the time and taught me personally, taught me a lot of how to present yourself, you know, how things could sound. Yeah. Well, get into a lot of different things, as I said. You have a new book, um, yeah. which is called, <laughs> it's the great Great name, Goth A History. Want yeah. to get into that, of course. You have a new album that's coming out, Los Angeles, yeah. with the drummer of Susie and the Banshees, Budgie, uh, yeah. and then yeah. Garrett Jackknife Lee. So yeah. you have the, you know, this trio that's coming out with new music. And I'll ask you about that because one of the lines oh. I, I love when I was reading about it is yeah. that it was described as a 55-minute electronic head fuck. Yeah. And I thought that was I thought that was great. There are so many great okay. songs that you that you wrote and co-wrote right. with Robert and others in the band. Yeah. And so it was very difficult to pick one. But sure. Boys Don't Cry seems like, uh, well, first of all, it's a, a great song. It's funny because when I was looking at Spotify this morning, Boys Don't Cry was the number one listed. You know how it oh, yeah. identifies oh, yeah. Yeah. what's no, playing the most. I try. I try my hardest not to look at Spotify because I have I have some serious problems with it. But yes, you're right. It's the it's the one that people listen to the most. Yeah, which is pretty interesting because there's so many great songs. But but first, I want to get into just a little bit of the story of you and the band and you yeah. and Robert because yeah. my understanding is that you met when you were five years old and went to yeah. school together. So yeah. just take me through just you know briefly the a little bit of a journey of you and Robert and how you formed the band and okay. the evolution uh, yeah. of the different names of the band. I know there were a lot of people who were coming yeah. and going, but you yeah. two stayed constant. Yeah. Well, you know, Robert, when I was a very little boy, like one of my earliest memories, it, it, I, I used to live, Robert used to live next door to my grandmother with his parents, right? And I would see him in the backyard yeah. playing, you know? And like all little boys, I'm like, oh, there's another one of, of me. We didn't really, you know, make any contact then. But the first day of school, we got on the bus because we were both Catholic. 
And that meant, you know, in England that you have to go probably to another town to find a school because there are not many Catholic schools. So we, we got on the bus together and we went to Catholic school. And then, you know, like most kids, we sort of, we hung out a little bit, but we didn't really sort of start doing things together until we were about, I suppose, like middle school, 11 and, and you know, 12. And we started to think about music because that's when you generally kind of, as a teenager, you start to discover music and stuff you like and we had a class together where we would be in the the library studying and we got talking and i'm like yeah so i like this guy Jimi hendrix you know i have a big poster of him on my wall and he's like yeah me too he said my brother's got all his records do you want to come around and have a listen and stuff and i'm like sure but then you know we we would start to uh rehearse what we thought we could play in in the, the school music room like lunchtime you know robert would bring his uh I'm not sure what the equivalent is here, but like a, a sort of uh, $20 Woolworths guitar that he had, and we'd plug it into the stereo system, and then I would raid the, the music cupboard and find whatever things I could do use to hit. And we'd play that, and, we, and we'd, you know, we'd try to make something that seemed reasonable. And, and so, you know, that's really where the whole the whole thing started. And then gradually... As we got older, you know, we could start to hang out with each other. And Robert's parents were pivotal because they they built, they remodeled their house and they built a sort of extension that they were going to use for like Christmas and parties and things. And we, we just moved in, you know, we just like, that. okay, I'll put my drums in there. We'll put the amps in there. And for three years from like 16 to 19, that's where we were. You know, I don't know if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. He says the difference between, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like 10,000 hours, right? So that's that's where we put our 10,000 hours in there. I mean, not not on purpose, you know. We For us, it was a social thing, which is, I'll, I'll talk to you later about the new album, how, how it was so similar to the way we started playing music. But we would just sit there like three days a week, just chat, talk, play records, and then say, well, look, I've got this thing. Just can you do something with it? And, you know, maybe it'd be a little riff that Robert had, or maybe it'd be a beat or a, a, an idea or a name for something, you know, and we just go from there. So the parents were supportive of the fact that you took over this new part of the house. And well, yeah, they were, they were until there. it came, you know, like like Christmas time and stuff. We had to get out and go to the, the yeah. local church hall. But yeah, yeah, yeah no, they yeah. were always, always both, both Robert's parents were always very supportive of what he did and what we did, which was great, you know? Yeah, I know that there were a couple different iterations before you became the trio that became the cure. But one of the iterations yeah. was first the easy cure based on and tell me about that and the evolution from the easy cure which was one of the names and then that evolved in to the cure well we used to do sort of like uh trilogies of songs you know because we we couldn't really figure how to go from one you know part of a song to another part so we do like three sections and we call them individual songs like three songs so we had one I'd written some words for, and it, it said something like, I need an easy cure. And what we did was we couldn't decide the name of the band. So we thought we'd read that Bowie had cut up all his words and put them together and sang them. And so we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll cut up all the words, we'll put them in a hat, and we'll pick out something. And whatever we pick out, that's the name, right? So we picked out easy cure and we were like yeah all right okay we'll use that and we used it and then we were sort of thinking well you know about a year later all this punk stuff was happening and we're like well that sounds a little bit too sort of hippie-ish and stuff you know let's just call it the something so we call it the cure okay great fine so that's how it stuck it was a combination of purposeful thought and happy accidents, like most things, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing because I, I do, you know, I've interviewed so many great artists and there's so much serendipity that comes with sure. the, yeah. with the evolution and success and, yeah. and resonating with the audience out there. And I had no idea that that's how the, the name evolved, that right. it was putting, an, putting something in a hat and picking it out, which became the cure, <laughs> yeah. which is... Such yeah. a classic name in yeah. music, you know, history. Yeah, and it works. And I mean, you know, but who whoever thinks names work, I'm sure when uh, 
when you know um they sat down and said well what would we call our band pink floyd and everybody was like what's that mean you know what's yeah. that what's a pink floyd can you eat a floyd or is it something you grow you know i'm sure those conversations went on but over time you know you get uh, attached to that name and also people attach what it is and it turned out to be very uh very fortuitous to call ourselves that really in lots of ways yeah yeah so when you started and then we're going to dig into the song but when you this was now late 70s yeah. and there were the three of you you were yeah. with um you and robert and then michael dempsey on bass yeah. right the sure. three of you yeah and you were going into the studio for the first time to record your debut album was there already the name was goth uh a thing no, that you were thinking no. of at all or was okay. no no i mean you know the first album was basically a live set like most bands i mean there's that old saying right in, in in the music business you know you have your whole life to make your first album right and then six months to make number two right which is pretty much how it right. went for us right and it goes for most bands so the first album we walked in and we're like okay this is these are the songs that we play live right. and as a young band, you know, you get very used to, if you pay your dues, which I'm sure a lot of people still do, if you go out and you play to people, you know, everybody's played to the pub on a Sunday night with five people in who don't care, who really don't care what you play or don't play, you know, you're probably just, you know, uh, a loud sound over there talking. So you have to find a way to grab their attention and you have to find a way to keep your spirit up. So songs changed in time with that but the basis of what we would always like was was like the more melancholy you know so even on the first album there's a couple of songs that are are in that that vein now nobody called it goth because it it wasn't goth yet i mean you know there there are signposts i mean i talk extensively about this in my book because you know, a lot of people bristle at the thought that The Cure might be called a goth band. And they say, oh, no, no, it wasn't goth. It wasn't goth. And I see that point of view, you know, that it's true in lots of ways. But the opposite's also true because we were the we were like the fertile ground that that came from. You know, nothing, I, I, you know, maybe I go out on a limb and say that it wouldn't have happened quite the way it happened if it hadn't have been for us and a, a few other people that I name in the book. It's like that's that's the place where it came from. And nobody i don't care what band you are nobody goes okay it's january the first 1977 we're going to make punk music now and that's what it's going to be called that's what everybody's right. going to call it and they're going to love it right. i mean i remember going to see the clash and suicide were opening for them right from new york and suicide called themselves punk years before you know like we're we're like this new york punk music you know and Nobody kind of took it up, but it, it took some time for it to all to coalesce, you know, and, and Suicide didn't sound anything like The Clash either. But, you know, good, good, you know, idea from Strummer and, and co to, to spot where the connections are. You know, I always like that about The Clash, that they always brought people on tour that they could see the connections. This is where we're going and this is where some of this comes from, you know. Um, it's very true. It's very true. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned The Clash, and in some ways, it's analogous that The Clash is, I would say, enigmatic, like um, yeah. the word I use for you, meaning <laughs> from, from my perspective that yeah. very different kinds of music. But yeah. you said like you liked the melancholic when you started, but then yeah. the sound alternated and frequently on the same album from melancholic, a little bit dark, to very upbeat and fun yeah. and, and all yeah. that. And The Clash, of course, would do their more like punk and then yeah. they would have a reggae song or something like that yeah and was, but you know it's all it's all to do as well with where you find yourself in place and time because it's no you know i'm i know it sometimes to people that didn't grow up in london or around it it, it it's like seems strange that they would do a reggae song but if you grew up in london at that time reggae and punk were the, like the two predominant forms because they were both youth youth music you know and you couldn't yeah. escape you could not escape reggae if you lived in in west london for instance you know because it was coming out of the walls left right and center there was lots of you know blues places and stuff and so people um 
you you play what you hear you play what you hear and what you know you know and that's that's yeah. how it how it works and and then yeah and you, then you make it your own then you make it your own and you reinvent it and that's what's been happening ever since you know gene vincent and uh elvis you know for sure yeah and then just quickly before i dig into the song well so what does because it's the name of your book we've yeah. talked about a little bit what does goth mean then to you Goth is not really a subculture. People sort of think of it. A good friend of mine, Kathy Unsworth, who's a journalist in in uh, England, she she's written a book about it as well. And she also said she said to me the other day because I did a, a, a book event in London with her. She said, um, "You know, it, it's really good that you actually came out and called it goth and said yes, this is what it is." Because she said a lot of times she said people avoid it because the mainstream press sort of tries to defang the, the music by by calling it that because like if you can go okay well it's about bats and coffins and graveyards you know yeah. you could do like exactly what you just did it's a smile comes to your face and people go oh well it's not that serious then and we can ignore it you know or we could just sort of pull it by but actually it's very serious you know i spent 40 years going around north america i can walk into any small town anywhere in america and you know if i spend an afternoon there and go to the coffee shop or whatever <clears throat> i can spot the five or ten kids who are going to be goth even if they don't know it yet you know themselves yeah, yeah. You know? it's like because it's a way it's a way of being it's a way of life it, it's more a way of looking at the world it's a philosophy it's not it's not a fashion you know the fashion comes with it but it, that's not the main part about it. And the music as well. You know, there's lots of different types of music I would think would have that influence, you know, from something like Kate Bush with, with Wuthering Heights, which is very goth. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was starting, I was going to start a podcast with another friend of mine a while back, a few years ago, and we were going to have this section that we would call goth or not goth. And uh, so we bring up <laughs> I people, love it. I up, love it. Right, we bring up people. It wasn't my idea; it was my friend's idea. I have to tell him that. Um, we brought up this thing. We go, okay. We name two people, so we'd go, we go, okay. Michael Jackson, probably goth, right? He's he was pretty goth, right? Lionel Richie, mm, not goth, not goth at all. You know, interesting. So you know, you can you can pick out the the elements, and and that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the elements that make up things. You know, I mean, there would be no, you know, and and I'm sure you know you'll get a lot of letters about this or, or what people get nowadays email billy eilish there'd be no billy eilish without goth you know that's that's part of it that's that's it's it's manifestation later on but i think it was it was all the things that we were listening to all the types of music it was also all the things we were reading which doesn't affect a lot of music intentionally you know if it affects it unintentionally but for us it was very much part of it we we wanted to be you know a lot a lot of late 70s or mid 70s rock music was very certain and uh brigadocious and you know like hey i feel like making love and we are the champions you know it's like it's very on the outside and yeah external it's external you know and for us, a lot of what we think about was internal, and we wanted to express that. And that, that requires some vulnerability, you know? Yeah, for sure. You were going into the studio now, the three of you. Yeah. You called your debut album uh, it's got Three Imaginary Boys. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? 
window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Right. Yeah, there were two titles, one in the UK and then Boys Don't Cry in the US. Right, right. Three Imaginary Boys, and that was the debut name in the UK. Yeah. Why Imaginary? I had a dream about, uh, it was actually about Robert's Garden. And there were people walking around the garden late at night and they were like ghostly, but, but not. And it was, then it was obvious to me, it was us. And it was so there's three, three of us. And, but it was in my imagination. So that's imaginary boys, because that's the simple answer for it. The other thing to me is it it speaks to what I was talking about, about certainty, you know, like a lot of rock music beforehand was very certain in where it was going, what it was doing and what you had to get from it. And for us, nothing was, was certain. Nothing was obvious. We were trying to, to find out what we felt and how we felt it. So to be imaginary was actually probably, you know, the only way we could really describe ourselves at the time. Were you pretty certain about the songs that you selected for the first album? Like I said, the first album was really our, our live set for the, the previous you know, couple of years or whatever. So yes and no, because, you know, when we got in the studio, I know, you know, there's some other thoughts about this, but we were, you know, in as much as we had some professional knowledge, we'd been in a studio before we understood what went on. We didn't really have, obviously, we didn't have the idea of how you make an album. You know, it's like, it's the same thing as writing a book. Once you've done it, you get the idea, you know what you have to do. But the first time you do it, it's terrifying, you know, because you, yeah. like, you know, you look down and you go, okay, I've got to write 80 to 100,000 words and they've all got to join together. Oh my God, how do you do that? Same with an album. You know, you've got to make a whole thing that's going to, as it was then, two sides of vinyl. It's got to make sense and it's got to sound good and it's got to sound cohesive. So we had Mike Hedges, who was really only, you know, a few years older than us, but seemed like this very wise, elder, older man, you know, because everybody does when you're 20, you know. And um, he's probably in his mid-20s, you know. So And Chris Parry, who, who had taken us on, you know, and it's good credit to him that he actually saw who who we were and thought, okay, this can, you know, it might take a little time, but this could be really good. And... So we we sat in the studio with him, and and in as much as we had a little, some knowledge of what's going on, how to get to that point wasn't really our forte. So we kind of you know we said, okay, you show us where you're going to go, and we didn't assert ourselves as much as we would for the second album. So the first album is an amount. I mean, you know, for the first album, we didn't really have much of a choice about what the cover looked like or anything. It was like presented to us, like, okay, this is your cover. And we're like, oh, okay, maybe that's what you do. Since you were playing essentially a live set yeah, yeah. on the first album, you wrote the song well before that, this particular yeah. song. Right. And, but was there much shaping by him in the production of your sound? Or did did he, or was it in their minds, the production's minds, that this is the sound, this is great? Like, how did you, was, was there a lot of that, that kind yeah. of guidance? Chris Parry was a drummer in a previous life, you know, and I always say, you know, a little tongue in cheek, but it's not really, it's kind of true. You know, all drummers are friends, right? It's like the Freemasons. If you're in it, you know, you're in it, right? (laughs) And so, you know, he he had a great affinity for the drums, so he liked the drums. So he made sure that I had a really good drums set to play. Actually, it belonged to uh, Rick Butler from The Jam because they, they had been there and they'd got some new 
equipment and he persuaded them because he had signed them to Polydor beforehand. And he said, well, you know, would you let my boy borrow your kit because it's a lot better sounding than the crap that he has, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. So I got to use Rick Butler's great drum kit and... Then, you know, there's the three-piece, so there's a great deal of space. I think probably the one thing that we did have input in is is to make it sound spacious, you know, because we we liked things to be to be empty. And like the drummer in Cannes, Jackie Liebitz, would say, you know, you have to play monotonous. So we liked, we liked things that just evolved slowly. But, you know, in the first album, it doesn't work quite like that because there's other influences coming on and other pressures you know you've got to make an album that's going to make a, a splash and the easy way to do that is, is to write something that's catchy and and you know what people would call an earworm nowadays but it gets into you yeah and we had actually started a song like boys don't cry michael has a very good remembrance about that but i'll bring that up later because it, it makes more sense when i tell the story of how we came about that song no, well, let's talk about that. It's the perfect time to talk about that song and give me the journey of the song how, from uh, the very spark, initial spark of it. You know, we had heard bands like Buzzcocks and loved the fact that they uh, they were writing songs that were punky, but were also like you know great pop songs. You know, and pop songs weren't uh, wasn't a, a bad word to us. You know, we we like some pop songs. You know, we'd grown up on on things like uh, T Rex and uh, you know Bowie and bands like that and glam rock. And so we we heard all those things. You know, when we were we were going to do, it, I think it was that the Queen of England had a anniversary. I think it was nineteen seventy seven, right? And we were going to play this festival because lots of people had festivals for things like that. And so we were going to play this festival. It's a very small festival, and we had rehearsed either the night before or that afternoon, and Robert had presented us with what became the bassist for Boys Don't Cry. And we're like, Michael said, yeah, he thought it was great because it was like it had something, it had a different feeling, and, and it was powerful. It was a pop song, but it was a powerful pop song. And so we we played that in rehearsal and then we went to play at the festival that shows you, you know how dedicated we were we like in the morning we got up in the morning rehearsed and then went to this festival with like maybe 50 people at the most you know lolling about on the grass and that was it and we played it and people kind of reacted a little bit to it and we thought okay that that's a good that's a good direction to go in you know there's something positive it wasn't our first single it wasn't the first single that came out for us but it was it was indicative of what we could do write something that's plaintive but catchy that was that was a, a good sign for us so that's really how boys don't cry came about so robert presented something to you that was yeah. the basis of it does that mean yeah. that that was the melody and the lyrics or some uh, initial lyrics no, i don't really recall i think it was probably both at the time Sometimes, you know, a lot of things, a lot of songs that we did at the time, which is why, you know, we tried to employ this way of working with the album I've just made with Budgie and Jack No Flea. It's like music's, the problem comes with bands after about the second or third album and, and everybody gets these roles set in their mind because they're like, okay, this has worked this didn't work, this is what I do, that's what you do. So, you know, you come to record something and everybody has their stations and everybody knows what they're going to do. And, it, you know, that's fine, but that can become very boring after a while because, you you know, you, I, I think, you know, music is the only art form that people are expected to kind of recreate what they did before, but in a different version. So it's, you know, familiar, but different, you know, and that that's a right. real, real conundrum, you know. I mean, you don't expect, you know, a portrait painter to paint the same portrait every time, you know. It's like, you know, it's not Mona Lisa times 100, you know. It's like something different. <laughs> so we were very uh, against doing things that way. So I think initially we would all throw in ideas, you know. So it's like, for instance, a forest. I thought of the title, 
Robert wrote the words, you know. Great, and, great song, great thank song. You, thank you. So, you know, different things come from stuff. And songs were never made in the same way. You know, sometimes one of us would come up with a little riff or a beat or a lyric, and we would go from there. Over the years, though, you know, things start to get streamlined, read boring, and and everybody goes, especially when you get bigger and everybody, you know, you don't need to get everybody together to record. So you sit at home in your own home studio, make up stuff that you think the others would like and send it to them. And then you have a big meeting where you go, okay, this one, this one, this one, that one, no. And then you work on those things, which creates, you know, a whole set of other problems about stuff. So... I don't know. At the beginning, you know, it's naivety because we, we, you know, also didn't really know what, I mean, this goes against what I just said, but it's like we didn't know each other's strengths either, you know, what we do mm-hmm. best for each other and with each other. And so you have to explore it. So that was probably the first time when that sort of uh, scarcity, not scarcity, that sort of minimalism of musical input came with a nice sense of melody because there's a lot of melody in there but there's there's excitement because it's a little punky and it's a little you know the rhythm of it is like that but it's also you know it's like the, and and I don't equate this with the Beatles but you know most of the Beatles best songs have something that's very familiar you know you go oh okay and you latch in straight away and then there's a little yeah. twist and then there's something. And at the very end, there's another little twist and you go, whoa, wasn't expecting that. And that that excites. I was reading a review of actually of my book uh, and it said, you know, humans, something I'm paraphrasing. It said like humans crave difference and certainty, you know, and, and it's true. You know, you want to know that like, you know, I listen to songs sometimes and, and it'll probably annoy my wife. I say, okay, I can, I know exactly where the, I've never heard this song before, but I know where they're going to break and where this fill's going to go on the drums and what what they're going to do here because it follows a pattern, you know, and I know the pattern yeah. is ingrained in my head so I could play it without even knowing the people. Sit down. It's funny. I'll tell you a funny story. I did a, a charity event, which I, I tend to do each year, which provides musical instruments for kids who don't have the wherewithal for musical instruments. So we we raise money for that. And uh, it was last weekend and the organizer called me up and he said, I, I want to put together like a little cover band to play for this, this particular section of the, the show. Uh, and he said, do you think you could, you could do it? Would you like to do it? I said, yeah, I, yeah, I play drums. I can do that. He went, okay. So, so he, so he said, I've got the other guy that's going to do it with you, Moby. So I went, okay, I don't know Moby personally. I, I think I've met him once, but I don't know him personally. What songs are we going to play? And he's like, I'm not sure yet. It wasn't until we got on stage and Moby turned around to me and said, can you play this? And I'm like, I think so. Just, you know, give me a nod when you want to stop. And and so I start, you know, I can play songs that I don't know because I know them. Yeah, I know. That's quite a weekend treat, by the way, in Los Angeles, (laughs) where all of a sudden you're at this little event and it was probably not small, but not huge. And you have you have Lal Tolhurst of The Cure and uh, other points, obviously. And then you have Moby on stage just whipping up a nice live set for, 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 you know, the uh, benefactors dinner or something like that. I can't remember what it was. It's awesome. Yeah, it was just fun, you know. Yeah, good good for you. We're going to take another quick break and then we'll be right back and get into your new projects. And then just I want to touch a little bit about the transformation of the sound. Interestingly, one of the things I read before I take the break was that Robert actually was unhappy with your first album, which uh, I don't know if that's true or not true, but that's interesting. But anyhow, I'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Lal Tolhurst of The Cure. You were the dr- original drummer, co-founder of the band. Yeah. And then your your style, and sadly, we don't have time to get into it too much, but there was a reinvention of swords. I don't know if that's right, but you you moved from the drums to the keyboard. And yeah. just very quickly, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did you want to do that? Well, mostly it was force of circumstance because we had finished our fourth album, which was very intense. And we went on tour, and the tour was very intense. 
And, you know, the band effectively broke up at the end of that tour, you know. So I, I decamped to France, went to work with some French bands and, you know, produced an album, two albums, I think, with d different bands. And then I got a phone call from Robert because, you know, at that point, like I said, the band had broken up. I didn't think we were going to carry on. And Robert called me up and said, I, I'm going to go in. I'm thinking of going into the studio. Would you like to come along? And I went, yeah, sure. So that's when it was just two of us. And I'm like, okay, right now everybody's using drum machines. You know, I think like it was like soft cell, different people. Everybody's using different yeah. stuff. It was exciting. You know, it was like, hey, this is a new thing we can do. So I said to Robert, well, why don't we, you know, we'll, we'll get some kind of machine or whatever. And then I'll go into these new keyboards and stuff, which seemed very exciting. You know, like there was the idea of sampling and stuff. Nobody had thought of that before. And we were like, except on tape, you know, and we were like, okay, we can, we can use something like this and it'd be exciting. And also, you know, for me as well, I thought, okay, you know, I like being the drummer, but I also want to be out front a bit, you know, because I, yeah. I'm a performer, you know, <clears throat> I often yeah. tell people, you know, I get on stage, my heart rate goes down. I'm not, you know, it's like, I'm more comfortable Interesting. there, you know, it's, it's maybe a bit psychopathic. I'm not sure, but I, my heart rate, it's, <laughs> I'm calm up there. It works. Yeah. You know, I'm calm. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like when I'm there, it, I'm comfortable. I know what I'm doing. So, so I wanted to be out front a bit more and it just seemed like a good thing to do. So that's really, you know, like circumstance became the master of that, that particular idea. And, and then we just ran with it further forward. I mean, you know, I love both sets of things. I do both sets of things still. I, I think, you know, drums are my first loves in lots of ways, but you know, also, if I look at it, writing is my first love, you know, like Pearl Thompson, who was in the band several times and at the very beginning as well. He said to me a little while back, he said, you've always been a writer since I've known you since, and he knew me since I dated his sister when I was 15 or something, you know, so you, you have a community where everybody knew are. each other. Well, yeah, yeah. It was very incestuous in that way. You know, I mean, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, if you live in a small town, you're going to know everybody. I mean, in our small town, there was only one other band and it was run by um, Neil Gaiman, the, the, the author, the famous author. Right. And I read an article recently where he said, you know, or this may have been in my dream, but I'm pretty certain I read it. He said, he said, the only other band in our town was The Cure. So we stopped, you know, which I thought was oh, that's funny. magnanimous. Yeah. And also, you know, he obviously went on to do some great things. So, you know. Well, very good. So we talked a little bit about the integration, the formation of the band. And that was in the late 70s. And then disintegration of the of the band in, <laughs> yeah, in 1989 yeah. when the album disintegration yeah. so lol just tell me a little bit about that about the circumstances of you two were best friends from the you were mates from the very beginning you sure. started everything yeah. it was your musical journey you know you co-wrote everything together like you said there were just two of you when you kind of moved from the drums to the right. keyboard right right so yeah. tell me about disintegration you know, the the whole thing is a very slowly um, happening car wreck, really, you know, because like most bands, it, it's like, as it gets, you know, we, most bands don't last longer than about 10 years, you know, but if you do, then, then things start to happen, you know, and we'd been going for a long time. All the usual, you know, culprits came in, you know, there, there's too much drinking, there's too much partying, there's too much everything, and it all goes on. And at a certain point, I realized that for me, my ability to do the things that I really loved was getting damaged by you know, my mental situation, my mental health, really, which is something I've become ever since then, like a, a, a great advocate for that in, in music. You know, I went to do a, a, a thing with a, a friend of mine, Dr. Christine Guptill, up in uh, Toronto, because she had a, you know, some conferences about this particular thing for musicians and artists working and how how things, you know, get affected. And she's doing a lot of great work about it. So, but anyway, back then I fell prey to all of that. And I think, you know, for disintegration, even though, you know, there was there was some input from me, there wasn't enough. 
certainly wasn't enough for my own satisfaction, certainly wasn't enough for anybody else's satisfaction. And and it was a very traumatic, trying experience. When I think about it now, it's still that way. But I've come to terms with it ever since because it's been a long time ago. And, you know, I got healthy. I, I got clean and sober. I've been that way for a very long time. And so that's really the long and the short of it. So Disintegration was actually a very true title. You know, that's what was happening for me. Yeah. But also it was happening a bit for the for the band overall. If you look at it, it's like it's never just one person, one situation. There's always... There's always things going on that that drive stuff into a different place. The thing about The Cure is, you know, it's like family for me. I know what's going to happen the day I die. I know my obituary. You know, I know what it's going to say. It's obvious, you know. But Robert's the person I've known the longest my whole life now because my parents have passed away. I've known him 60 years. So it's... It's like family. Like family, it goes up and down. You know, families waves. You know, people are not always, you know, exactly the same with each other. They were their whole life. It changes. So that's really the story of the cure. Yeah, yeah I I remember my, and I appreciate you telling me the story and telling us the story. I remember at the time because my friends and I were huge Cure fans. Yeah, and. I remember on disintegration, there was a lot of buzz about, okay, disintegration. Does that mean the band is, you know, this is the last album and all that. And it is a very dark album. It was kind of a bringing back the dark after some uplifting, you know, an era that had much kind of a different alternative sound and going to that. So very interesting that it's not surprising that there's that kind of darkness at that time. Yeah. But let's segue a little bit into because i want to get into some rapid fire questions with you too oh okay uh, but your new but your new projects yeah gotha history yeah and we already talked a little bit about what goth means to you and then your new album los angeles yeah and that's as i said described as an electronic head fuck yeah interesting you have you already mentioned james mercy murphy yeah, yeah. of lcd and he's actually a vocalist on, and then you have you know a lot of different musicians, yeah. the edge from you too. But tell yeah. me a little bit about those two projects, why the time was right for you mm. to, I know you're a writer and you've yeah. written other books and yeah. you've written so many songs, but yeah. why now for Gotha history and why now Los Angeles with, uh, with Budgie of Susie and the yeah. Banshees and Garrett Jackknife? Well, a lot, a lot of that happened because, you know, I, me and Budgie have been friends since 1979. You know, he came, <clears throat> he was playing with Susie and the Banshees, and so we became friends on that tour. So a few years ago, a friend of mine said, oh, an old friend of yours is coming to town with John Grant. He's playing with John Grant, and he's, I'm going to do an interview for him. And I went, oh, good, I'll come along and meet him you know because i haven't seen him for a few years i want to say hi yeah and so we went for for breakfast one morning downtown la and i walked in and there was me and budgie and kevin haskins from bauhaus had come and you know i know kevin's a little bit then i know much better now and we were all sitting there and i said you know we should do something because you know we're all getting up there a bit older and stuff we should do something now's the time so Instead of the three tenors, how about the three drummers? You know, so we, I love it. So, you know, we thought, it. okay, great, fine. So, so Budgie finished the tour, came back to Los Angeles, and we piled all this noise making stuff in my car. And we went up the coast to this little remote village and overlooking the ocean. And we sat there for a week and we made noise. And we thought, okay, this is really good. We could do something. And then I called up another drummer friend of mine which is going to surprise you because you would never guess this in a million years, but Tommy Lee, right, from Motley Crue, right? Yeah, of course. He has a great studio, and I met Tommy way back in the 80s because we were all on the same circuit, you know, Motley Crue, The Cure, and Madonna. I never met Madonna, but, you know, I would come back in the evening and maybe the crew had played there the night before or were going to play there the next night. And I'd see Tommy. That would be quite a double billing, by the way, the Cure and Motley Crue. Yeah, I don't know if it would be great, but the the drummers would get on. But we were we were like sitting there. We'd always sit in the bar and talk, and he would tell me about his thing that went upside down with him playing drums on and stuff. And I knew he had the great studio in LA, so I called him up and I said, "Hey, Tommy, we need you know a studio. Can we come to your studio?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll give you the bro rate." 
you know, he said, he said, don't bring any drums. So he said, because he said, I have a shitload of drums. And I got there and he was right. He's got this huge warehouse type room full of drums and nothing else. Right. So, so we made this album, me, Kevin, Budgie, and we asked Danny Loner from Nine Inch Nails to come along and help produce it. And at the end of a few weeks, we'd got this album, which sounded like you would imagine an album from a guy from The Cure, a guy from The Banshees, uh, a guy from Nine Inch Nails, and a guy from Bauhaus would sound like, you know? And we didn't like it. We were like, no, this sounds too much like where we came from. This is not the future. This is the the past, you know? Interesting. And at that point, fate intervened, as it always does with music, right? Kevin had to go because uh, Bauhaus had started this big reunion tour, so he had to go and play it back with Bauhaus. So <clears throat> Kevin went to play with Bauhaus, and it was just me and Budgie left. And I kind of knew Garrett, you know, from like socially you know so one day i went up to this festival in topanga and i met him and we were listening to uh willie nelson's sons band which you know i'm not really a country guy as you get but they were great they were like punk country i mean they're brilliant you know and john densmore from the the doors introduced them which was you know pretty interesting and so yeah. we, we just sat down and talked for hours and i said oh, look, i've got this album can i bring it to you and see what you think of it and he went, yeah. And I brought the album up to him and we had a listen and three or four hours going through talking about it all. He says, why don't we just rip it up and start again? Why don't we just start again just to, you know, budgie, get budgie to come back to LA and we'll record another album. And that's what we did, you know. And I, I walked outside. I, I called budgie up. I said, I found our guy. And I was probably crying, you know, because it was like, it was very emotional. So that whole thing started. We did most. Was it, was it? Was it very emotional because you felt, yes, this is different. This is yeah. something unique. Yeah. yeah, it was. It, it felt because I realized talking to Jack Knife that this this was the missing part. This was the part that we needed that was going to make it work. And you know, plus you know, Jack Knife has the, one of the best studios I've ever been in. It's like it's like Aladdin's cave. It has every synth known to man in one room and every bits of bit of drum stuff in the other room so you know it's like it was perfect for us and it's right out you know in the middle of the canyon in the middle of nowhere you'd never find it if you didn't know where it was so it was very peaceful but very creative because every day we would go up there you know it's about half an hour from my house we'd go out there we'd have a cup of coffee and we'd sit and listen to records because Jackknife has about a bazillion records and he collects, you know, like 10 albums come every day to his door, you know, and he's like, so we listen. Vinyl? Vinyl, only vinyl. And we, so we listen to vinyl and we'd start talking about it and then would go, oh, okay, I've got one of those and have another listen, something, all music from all over the place. So uh, do that for an hour or so, getting to know each other because you're like, you know, I knew Budgie, I also knew Jackknife, but the pair of them didn't really know each other. It's actually, it's the role I've I've been in a lot of my life. You know, I, I get people to talk together and get, get the connections. So anyway, we talked, we got, got going, and then we would say, okay, let's go make some music. And we just wander into the studio and start playing stuff. Sometimes I had maybe like a loop that I'd worked on, and I said, let's try this as a start, and, you know, throw that in. Sometimes nothing. Yeah. You know, we'd just, just go and play. And so it was very organic and very natural way to do things. So then we go home, come back the next day and Jack Knife would go, I, I, I've been playing around with these things. Have a listen. And he pressed the button and made this beautiful music out of the nonsense that we've been playing. Well, not nonsense, but you know what I mean? Just like very, yeah, yeah, of course. very uncontrolled stuff. And he had trammeled it into something worthwhile. And we go like, okay, well, let's add that to it and let's do this. And you know, then you've got the, the template on which to work. And, we did all that. We finished the whole album because we were going to go an instrumental album just the day that the whole world shut down with the pandemic. We had finished all the music uh, and we were like, oh, okay. So I, I dropped Budgie off at the, the airport and said, okay, see you sometime, you know, whenever this is all over. And during that, we thought, okay, Originally, we wanted to be like an instrumental album. And we, you know, like you see those old kraut rock albums where they have like, you know, Mobius, Rodelius, and Eno, you know, all on one album. We thought, okay, we're going to, yeah. that's where we got the titles from and stuff. And 
We thought, okay, well, I know James Murphy. Let's send him a track or two, see if he thinks he could do something. And and Budgie knew uh, Bobby Gillespie, so we were like, okay. And Jackknife knew The Edge because, you know, he's worked with you two a lot and he lives, like you know, on the next hillside. So they're all from Ireland as well, so they all know each other. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. So, Very cool. So that's how it all got together. And over a couple of years of the you know, the hardest part of the pandemic, you know, some people came to his studio, some people, you know, they just send things in remotely um, and it worked. And we started to see a pattern of what it's going to be like. And uh, so it became very exciting to us. And, uh, you know, we, it kept the faith up. It's funny because back in the day when you made an album, it used to take months and months for the album to come out because you're, you're printing vinyl and stuff. And it still does, but, you know, there was always that moment, like, you know, almost a year later after you'd finished it, where the world hears your work and 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 you get these people going, wow, this is, you know, whatever. Uh, or, you know, yeah. oh, I don't understand why you've done that. But it, it's an exciting moment. And we've got that coming up. And I'm, you know, next week or two. So I'm really, I'm looking forward to that. Because I'm so used to these songs, you know. I know I'm backwards fronts, you know, in my dreams, you know. But um, the world doesn't. So I'm happy for that. Time. No, congratulations. Thank on, you. Yeah, congratulations on that. And the, and the book too. And yeah. I look forward to definitely listening to the music, but also reading the book. Like the book to me is going to be very fascinating also. Well, and book, I know that's, had a, that's going to be a great start already. I went to uh, London a couple of weeks ago and then New York and did a thing over here. It, I've had a great reception so far. And it's, it's like people really love it, which is very... Um, you know, heartwarming to me. Well, like you said at the very beginning, goth mm. is a state of mind. You know, it's a yeah. way of being. It's yeah. not, um, and so it's always there. Yeah. Uh, it presents itself in different forms. But I know this: I have a Christmas gift coming <laughs> for my daughter, <laughs> and, Good. I, Good. and it's a book that we're talking about. Okay. So. Good. Okay. So, and um, really quickly, I want to get into a couple rapid fire questions before okay. we wrap it up. Yeah. So what's your favorite Cure song? If I like one song that I would play to somebody that didn't know us at all, I would say I would pick Cold off of Pornography just because I, I love the ah. way it lurches in and, and it's just got a power. But I also, you know, I like other songs like Just Like Heaven. I think, you know, it's a great pop song as well. And uh, you It's know. a great song. So, you know, there's, 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 there's too many, really. I mean, I know that sounds popular. Well, there are so many. True. Yeah. Well, there are so many iconic songs from The Cure and that you co-wrote. Uh, and then as you listen today, just what are some artists that speak to you that you believe are breaking new ground? Mm, good. Uh, you know, I mean, my it's funny. A lot of people my age will come up to me conspiratorially and say, oh, there's no good music nowadays. You know, it all happened back. And they'd say, no, you're wrong. You just don't know where to look anymore. You've forgotten how to find it. But, you know, I have a son who's in a band, Topographies, and he's like, you know, 31. And the bands that he likes, you know, like uh, Boy Harsher and, and you know. Boy, I was going to ask uh, you about Boy Harsher. Yeah, Boy yeah. Harsher is a great band. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, you know, I didn't find them by myself. You know, he, I call him up, I go, Gray, what should dad be listening to? You know, clue me in. And he goes, yeah, okay, this one, this one. Maybe we should go and see this one. In the inevitable biopic that, of The Cure, <laughs> who would you want to play you, Lol? Robert Downey Jr. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, he don't have to play yeah. me later on because earlier, you know, he's, he's a little younger than me, but not much. Lol, that was fascinating. There's so many more things I'd like to ask you, <laughs> um, but I, I really appreciate the time. That's It's a fascinating journey. It's great music. The journey continues with your new book and your new album, which is great. So everybody who's out there, check it, check it all out. Thanks for joining me on the story behind the song. Thank you, Peter. I've enjoyed it very much. That was Lal Tolhurst, co-founder and former drummer, keyboardist, and songwriter of The Cure, sharing his candid stories about the band and his classic early breakout Cure song, Boys Don't Cry. I'm your host, Peter Chotty. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotty. That's P-C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, and Y like yellow. And at deepcutsmedia.biz. 
For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song.